you know, with the passage of the law going live January 1, I mean, this is here to stay. The ABC test is the new model. So it's important to, um, to get out in front of this as much as possible and address it. Hello, I'm Rebecca Taylor. Hey, I'm Buddy Porter. This is Ben Mullen. Hey, it's Sophie Pope. Hi, this is Kate Torrealba, and you're listening to the Hair Game Podcast. Hey, listeners, Eric Taylor here. Today is the big day. It is the iWatch Podloot giveaway day. I have the box, the iWatch box in my hand. It's a very clean box, it's beautiful, and it's ready to be giving, given to one of you. But before we do that, in 2020, we are going to continue doing the pod loot because you guys are clearly digging it, and uh, I'm loving that you guys are loving it. So we're going to keep doing it, but I want you to give us some indication of what you want for the pod loot giveaways. So please think about that and DM me at the Hair Game Podcast on Instagram. And let me know, what do you guys want? What do you guys want behind the chair? What do you guys want at home? What do you want us to be giving away? Which are the which are your favorite things that we've been giving away thus far? All right, uh, that'll kind of help us, help guide us in 2020 for the pod loot giveaways. Okay, now for the big drawing. I got all the names right here, hand it in the bag, and... WB Upstyles, WB Upstyles, DM the Hair Game Podcast, and let us know that you heard this, and we're going to send you this iWatch. At the end of the show, I'll tell you what we're going to be giving away next week. Now to Is Your Salon Legal with attorney Jason Ross. Jason Ross, welcome back. Good to be here. So you know that you are our most popular guest, right? Naturally. Yes. I never, never doubted it for a second. <laughs> of course, which is why you became an attorney, so you yeah. could become an entertainer on podcasts. Na- naturally. I, I mean, you know, how else would it be? People love talking about the law. Exactly. So, Just love scripting. So episode 68 was our last episode together. It is our most popular episode. I think that it has something to do with the title, not necessarily you, no offense. That, yeah, none taken, obviously. That was titled, Is Your Salon Legal?, which is a, which is a catching sort of title. And, uh, but I, I'm going to introduce you as if our listeners don't know you. You're a partner at San Diego law firm Higgs, Fletcher & Mack. Uh, you are the attorney who knows the most about how the Dynamex decision, which came out, uh, what now, like 18 months ago or so, and you can correct me, um, how it affects the salon industry. And that's what our last episode was about, how the Dynamex decision affected the salon industry. Anything you want to add to that? That's right. Um, yeah, I think that's it. Okay. Um, you know, normally on the podcast, we strive for inspiration, entertainment, and or education. And I was thinking about this. Um, which one of those do you think you are? Entertaining education. <laughs> I, I'm, we're combining, we're, com- we're melding together a category. Okay. You're very confident about the entertaining part. I was going to, I pretty much put you 100% in the education category. You know, the, I mean, Eric, the numbers speak for themselves. Number one, number one. <laughs> Yes, the GOAT, the greatest of all time. Um, The reason I have you back on is because the law has changed again, right? Yep. Okay, so let's start with a review of the Dynamex decision, and then um, you can tell us how the law has changed. Sure. So I think 
even going back a little further is probably just slightly a, a better starting point uh, as far as what we're talking about here. Um, we're, we're talking about the application of labor and specifically, for the most part, wage and hour laws to California employees. That's that's the real issue that we're talking about. Um, under applicable law, uh, as folks from the prior episode um, there are protections that apply to folks who are employees, but not to independent contractors. And obviously, that's sort of the rub, right? Everybody wants to, for the most part, get as a as a business, get folks into the independent contractor side because they don't have to provide them certain types of benefits, protections, et cetera. Compliance with the law can be uh, sort of not necessarily avoided, but it just doesn't apply to those folks. And so that's generally what we're talking about. And then forever and ever and ever in this state, there was a test that was basically called the control test. It was uh, a real broad host of unpredictable factors, which was supposed to help everybody determine whether you had employees on your hand or whether or not these were independent contractors. And that was how it was for generations and generations. And then about 18 months ago, this California Supreme Court came in and applied and basically, in my opinion, changed the rules of the game a little bit, although they disagree. Um, they say it's just an, it's a new interpretation of the same law, but what they did is they introduced this ABC test. Um, and it basically did away with the old control factors and, and kind of changed the game. And the big game changer on that was that it had three elemental components to it. One was part A, which basically said, you know, no control, which was the same as it was before. But then the big one that came in was part B. So it also added Part B, which is the biggest problem that everybody's probably heard about. And what Part B is, is is kind of new to the equation. And it says that if a worker does the same thing that you do for, that you do, then you are in the same business and you employ that person independent of anything else, no matter how little control you have over themselves, no matter whether they're in their own business or, or not. So... Part B was the big sea change that came in and really was sort of a, a groundbreaking event that really changed the dynamic of this whole test of whether or not you had employees or independent contractors on your hand. Okay, so pause. So translate that, translate B into how it relates to a hair salon and how a, a hair salon might run afoul of B. Sure. So the, the big issue with Part B is, is that most salons have their principal owners also practice styling, coloring, some sort of beauty service. And, and they also have booth renters, workers, employees, whatever they may be, who provide the same services. And when you run that through the same entity and the same operation, you have a Part B problem. Because even though the industry has historically created this idea that you can have independent contractors in a salon who are really booth renters, Part B arguably did away with that. And and and. For the last year and a half, that's effectively what I've been counseling people in the industry on and is whether or not that model still survives or not, um, how to employ that model if it does. Um, but that's that's the real Part B problem is, is that if you were a salon that also had owners, for instance, practicing styling and also had booth renters, Part B would come in and say under the new test, those are all your employees now despite what we've been – for the last 50 years, which is booth renters. So you, you know, for 50 years, you wouldn't have had to have met the wage and hour laws. And now you would, according to the new ABC test. And that's what's, you know, the big hoopla has been about for 18 months. Okay. 
And so we went over that in depth in episode 68. Of course, if somebody has not heard that episode and you want to hear all about that, go back and listen to it. That was a good summary. Now, what's changed? So what's happened is there's been some pretty intense lobbying up in Sacramento um, amongst every industry um, out there, um, even beyond the salon industry. And what everybody's been jockeying for is to get a built-in exemption, um, some law that would pass that would say, yeah, okay, as to, yeah, but as to us, I know you're going to treat everybody else's employees, but as to us, you know what, we'd kind of like to keep doing things the way that we've been doing them. Um, and the line out the door has been pretty long. Um, and it took them a year and a half, but they passed a law called AB5. So AB5 was passed about a month, month and a half ago, and it goes effective on January 1st. Um, and what it did was, amongst other things, it basically said, yep, AB, the ABC law is the new law for independent contractor determinations in the state. But if you are in an industry that has an exemption and you check all the boxes, those folks, even though you might have a Part B problem, for instance, are exempt from the ABC test so you don't have a Part B problem. And as specific to the salon industry, um, the lobby was able to get a, um, an exemption specific to stylists, licensed cosmetologists, licensed manicurists, and a couple other. Okay. So what does that, what does that mean? So what it means is we have some predictability and basically on a broad scale, it means that we now have assurance that if those elements are met with, by folks in the industry, that they can still have the booth renter model. Um, you, you have to meet all of the exemptions. And what I keep telling clients is, is there's good news and bad news. The good news is, is that it's more predictable and that you have some assurance that you can, you can be within the boundaries of the law if you follow those mandates. The bad news is, is that you have more predictability automatically, even though you've only run afoul of one of a host of specific things you have to comply with, you now have employees on your hand. Um, and you have to you know, meet wage and hour laws. You're subject to potential class action cases, which will seek a bunch of back pay wages. And, and it's just, frankly, a nightmare. Okay. So um, when we spoke last time, you were saying that most of your salon clients were moving towards the independent contractor side not the employee model. Yeah, I, I, I think there's a couple of things. Um, I think that my experience, which has been pretty extensive in the last 18 months in dealing with the salon industry, is there's a, a big host of people who have sort of had their head in the sands and are just hoping that they, this is gonna go away and now we know for sure that it's not. Um, you know, the law has been codified. It's, you know, it's on the books. Um, you know, and doubly so because a Supreme Court decision came out and the legislature said, yeah, we agree. We're not, you know, if it wasn't clear now, it's clear, you know, we say so. The folks who are addressing it are typically going in the context or moving over to the booth rent or independent contractor model and trying to meet it. Because I, I do think that for folks who operate in a traditional salon, I think that the model does meet that historical model a lot more simply. Um, I think it's important to note for everybody out there who's grappling with this stuff that the starting point, I think, for this is not a legal one, is really a philosophical one. And I think a lot of it comes down to, look, am I more interested in the brand than employing people versus having booth renters? Because 
one of the things that hasn't changed in this entire situation is the level of control that can be exerted over folks who are, you know, booth renters, workers, employees. Um, if you are dictating um, the details by which they perform their work, supplying all of their stuff and saying and evaluating the performance of styling and coloring and, you know, disciplining them for that and kicking them out of the salon for, you know, having too many complaints or, or whatnot. So the level of control could, could come up could come about in a, in a host of different ways. But importantly, one of the things that hasn't changed in this entire situation is, is that, you know, before if you exerted control, you had employees. And now, even under ABC tests and the exemptions, if you have too much control in the way that things are done, those are your employees too. You know, making these folks employees are probably going to be maybe your exclusive option. Um, but frankly, you know, maybe the best thing for your business too, because, um, you're able to c control quality a lot more than you are if you have booth renters. Um, right. And so, so go ahead. So, yeah. yeah, so I want to maybe back up a little bit and clarify that AB5 clarified how the, the Dynamex decision relates to beauty professionals. So it gave an exemption to beauty professionals, but... Uh, it also clarified what beauty professionals have to do in order to be considered independent contractors. Yeah, effectively, that's correct. Yep. Okay, okay. so there are, I believe, a few examples. Um, in, I don't know if it's actually in the law, but uh, give me some examples of things that a beauty professional has to do um, or a salon cannot do for the beauty professional in order for them to be considered independent under AB5. So yeah, if the exemption, all the things in the exemption are met, you can have valid independent contractors slash booth renters under the exemption, okay? And there's some things that are speci specified in the body of that law itself, and then there's a couple of things that are sort of holdovers from some prior laws, which are called wage orders. But here's kind of the list, okay? And we can get into specifics, but there needs to be a contract in place between the stylist and the, you know, hiring entity, salon, whatever you want to call it. Um, as I mentioned before, too, that there can be no control by the salon over the stylist in the performance of the styling work, effectively. So, um, so they could be just axing people, and and that's okay? Well, anything, any sort of terminations and things that would have to go on would have to be done with in compliance with the contract. The contract will set so, up. So hold on, I'm sorry. I, I my term was not very good. My verb was not very good. So they oh. could they could <laughs> just they could just be butchering people all day long, butchering clients and, and that's okay because they're independent. Well, it, it wouldn't be okay and you wouldn't be without recourse, right? Like the way I've been setting these things up to get into the weeds a little bit, which I'm happy to do or not do, but the contracts I set up are typically license agreements that are done for you know anywhere from a week to a month. Um, that meaning that you, the stylist under the contract, have a booth rental for one week at a time. And if there are safety issues like lopping off clients' ears, you can choose every at the end of that week to not renew the the contract, and then that stylist would be out. But the the notion is is that you can't just fire someone at will like you could an at will employee for poor performance. You just have to operate within the confines of the contract that you set up. So, um, you know, you would set up 
constructs in the contract that would allow you to you know address a situation like that and usually that's just done by the fact that it's somewhat for short term Mm -hmm. Uh, so you're not without recourse you just you can't you know evaluate folks um you know for doing good job or bad job with a client um you can't discipline them for that um you know you kind of need to let them be as far as letting them do their job which is their own business and that's kind of the the whole um situation that we're setting up is is that you have a bunch of independent business owners who rent space from you as the salon owner um and they're kind of free you know as long as they're in compliance with the contract to do that stuff without your sort of meddling and and like that's why i started the conversation with you know the first choice is a philosophical one not a legal one you know if you want to have that level of control over folks because they're you know making people look like my hair looks you know and, <laughs> and fire them for that then you know maybe they need to be employees because that's what you value mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so the first one was contract second one is you can't have a, a level of control over the performance of the work that's done okay every stylist needs to be licensed so if you have an unlicensed stylist or an assistant or anything like that um the exemption facially wouldn't apply um i think that that requirement ends up taking care of itself because everybody should have a cosmetology license anyway who's mm-hmm. practicing cosmetology but mm-hmm. you know that's one of those boxes that, you know got to check um, otherwise we're toast mm-hmm. one of the the other requirements is, is that they need to set their own rates um, and what that means is is that the services that they're providing to clients they need to be able to dictate to those clients what the charge is for that mm-hmm. now I will tell you that You know the way that we set these things up usually and the owners have a lot of control on the rental side You can kind of dictate what those service charges are going to look like without running afoul by controlling how much rent you're charging Mm -hmm. Um, So there's indirect control on the way to do that But they just the idea is is that they if they're gonna have a menu for services that the the prices on that sort of menu so to speak or any you know variation from it is is their own discretion not yours Um, Another issue is is that they need to, and this is right out of the exemption statute, they need to process their own payments. Um, and, and we can kind of circle back to this one because it, it creates, it's actually one of the more problematic elements here because I know that everybody is relying pretty heavily in the industry on these multi-merchant systems that um, run payment processing um, through a central hub, usually at reception or whatnot. Um, and, and there's some gray area there. Um, a lot of clients have this system set up where, you know, they're running the multi-merchant, it's swiped at the central desk by reception, but the money goes directly into account that's exclusively controlled by and is exclusively the booth renter's sort of bank account. So you're not holding any of the money, but you are potentially, arguably, processing payment for a booth renter, which may or may not be a problem. Uh-huh. Um, so it, it's just one of those things that, you know, every business owner salon owner is going to have to make an educated decision on what their level of risk tolerance is and sort of try and either do a workaround or just live with the fact that that might be a problem for them right and and it may not be i I could fashion a pretty strong argument that we're not processing the payments all we're doing is providing a conduit that that this booth renter pays for as part of their rent um Mm -hmm. and you know we're not controlling any of that money which leads us right directly into the next element which is is that the uh, money from the clients needs to be paid directly um, 
or excuse me, money from the clients need to be paid directly to the booth renters. Um, and, and you can see the sort of pro- potential problems that the last example creates for this one. I think though that, you know, they are paying them directly in that type of a multi-merchant situation. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anything you wanted to add on any of the? Well, no, I'm, I'm right with you. Hang it in there. Hopefully the listeners are too. Sounds good. Um, another thing they need to be able to do is to set their own hours. Um, which if you're, if you're truly setting up a booth renter model, uh, properly, that should be pretty easy. Um, they also need to be able to pick and choose their own clients. Hold on back to the hours. Sure. Does that mean that the salon needs to make the facility available 24 hours a day? Because what if one of their booth renters says, okay, well, you can't dictate my hours. I'm going to dictate my hours. I want to work from 1 a.m. to 8 a.m. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a common issue. Um, and I think that the answer is probably you can control that a little bit within, you know, reason, right? Like mm-hmm. if you tell them that they can't be there between 1 and, you know, 6 a.m. Or, or, you know, some clients even want to shut down on Sundays or Mondays, um, you know, Certainly, the overnight thing is probably less problematic. Um, you know, closing for one day out of seven is probably more problematic. The more access you deny, the larger the problem is that you probably have. Um, I think that there's some probably some some room for reasonable restrictions in that regard, but you'd want to shy away from it unless you absolutely had to. Um, and typically what we've been doing is providing, and I think you really need to do this, frankly, is the stylists have a key or their own access code to get into the salon pretty much whenever they want to. Um, I think also that in practice, this is going to be something that kind of takes care of itself. Yeah, probably. I mean, could, could you not set property rules like in the license agreement, there are yep. property rules and in those property rules, there are certain hours. Excellent question, and you can. Um, the more you dictate the hours, the more of a problem you have, but yeah. one of the things that you definitely do in, in our license agreements, which operate a lot like a rental agreement, just for you know, you know, common terminology, um, is there are things, an area, things that they're able to do and not able to do that's built right into the contract. There are areas that they're not able to go to and able to go to built right into the contract. And there are, you know, sort of bad, well, I don't know <laughs> what the proper terminology is, but, you know, there are certain bad things that you can't do. And if you do under the terms of the contract in relation to, you know, using the property or misusing it, then you're in breach and you can move on, right? And, okay. and those are additional constructs and protections that, you know, that are provided to salon owners that, again, sort of indirectly control this idea of setting own hours and, you know, well, wait a minute, you mean I have to let them in at 4 a.m. on a Saturday, you know, night or something? Mm-hmm. Um, so there are ways to sort of build some of those restrictions in with, without creating too much of an issue here. Okay, next. Um, they need to be able to pick their own clients. Um, that means that a typical situation where, you know, if there's a walk-in um, and, you know, they try the salon or the reception really, you know, tries to pass it along to somebody and even puts it potentially on their appointment book, the, the, which is a separate issue, but, um, the stylist needs to be able to veto that. Um, they need to have their own book of business. Um, 
there's a lot of gray area in that. I think, you know, the starting point is, is that they can't be looking exclusively to the salon to feed them clientele. Wow. All right. Yeah. And, and, and unfortunately no one knows exactly what that looks like, right? Of course. All we have at this point is the exact language of the statute and then a little bit of legislative history on it. But, you know, does that mean that, you know, if I get one walk-in referral from the salon that I don't have my own book, you know, what, what's the line or is it 51%? Is it 50.1%? Is it, you know, 75%? What's that line look like? Um, so, you know, it's, it's potentially an issue, but another one that's kind of a holdover from one of the prior laws, but it's still applicable because of the way that the law has been styled is, is this notion that the stylist to be a booth renter has to schedule their own appointments and, and, and keep a, an appointment book that's quote separate and distinct from that of the salon. And the problem with that is, is that the use of these electronic schedules, usually through a multi-merchant is pretty prevalent as far as my experience goes. Mm -hmm. Um, and while they do have their own separate appointment book, there could be an argument made that, you know, look, the salon is providing the platform for the calendar. The salon itself has access to the calendar, to my calendar, and therefore it's not quote separate and distinct. Um, it's, it's an issue. Um, and this is also one of those tricky areas where, you know, owners are just going to have to identify what's more valuable to them. Um, you know, having that platform in place or, you know, living with a little bit of legal risk. Um, and, and I, my suspicion would be again, although this is just sort of an educated guess that, you know, the law will come along with the use of technology, the law that was passed or implemented, I should say, that uses the separate and distinct terminology was passed, you know, decades ago. Um, so we've come a long way in the use of technology. So I think that there would be some allowance for that, um, recognizing how far we've come. Okay. Wow. That's a tough one. And, and of course, um, I, I'm learning one thing in particular, and that is why lawyers exist. <laughs> Why do you think we pass all these laws? <laughs> yeah, exactly. We need something to do, I guess. Oh my god. Okay, what else? So, uh, they anybody who's a booth renter has to have the applicable business licenses. So, you know, every county, every state, um, every city that they're in usually has some sort of law that says, look, in order to hold yourself out, you need to have a business license. And basically what it is, is you need to pay us money and we'll give you this little certificate that says you can, you know, collect money from others. They need to do that. You know, they're now an independent business. They, they need to be, um, running it as such. And that's one of the things that the law specifically says, yeah, you got to have your own business license. Um, they also need to hold themselves out to others and the public as sort of being in this business and open for, you know, open for business to any, any and all who want their services. Um, which is kind of an easy thing. I mean, if you truly have the booth renter model in place and these folks really are operating on their own and are just kind of renting space, that one should also kind of take care of itself. Um, okay. And that simply means when you say hold yourself out, you simply mean market yourself as someone who is there providing a service separate from the salon. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, whether separate or just, you know, that that's just your place, your, your place of business, right? Okay. You, 
you're in the business of doing services, styling services for yourself, and, and that's the way you kind of hold yourself out. Okay. Uh, the last couple, one is they need to exercise independent discretion and judgment in what they do. That's kind of this no control idea. Um, it, you know, how they cut hair is up to them, how they color hair is up to them, the, you know, the products that they use kind of up to them, that, you know, that type of, of thing. Um, and, and, you know, one important point is, is that, um, that control issue and this, you know, discretion and judgment component, these are all things that have to happen on a day to day basis. You can have the, the best, most airtight contract in the world, but if this salon and its booth renters are not operating in the way that the contract says or in, or the salon owners, you know, engaging in a lot of daily control over what they're doing, you know, the, then you have an employee on your hands, no matter what the contract says. And then the last one is that the stylists, they need to supply all their own tools. Um, so that means, you know, everything that comes with it, um, product, um, you know, blow dryers, you know, aprons, scissors, color, um, all that stuff needs to be paid for by the booth renter. Um, I think that there's still room in this model, like we talked about in the last episode, for a retail component for a salon owner to have without creating a bunch of employees. Um, and potentially, you know, you could even have a decent retail operation where the stylists basically supply themselves through your retail operation. You just have to run it appropriately and be really disciplined about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the issues that, you know, comes up, which you might not at first blush think would be a big one in, in this sort of supply their own tools issue is back bar. Um, I think we talked about this last time, but you know, is the salon going to be providing a single type of product to, for consistency and uniformity in the back bar? And if they are, that's a bit of an issue here. Um, because that, those are, quote unquote tools of the trade that, you know, a stylist should arguably be providing on their own. Um, and you know, there's a whole host of sort of mini decisions that need to be made in that regard along the lines of what we talked about before. Um, which is like some of these are going to be less than clear and you're just going to have to make a educated business decision on, you know, what you're willing and and okay with uh, living with. Right. Wow. Okay. So, uh, commission i know we talked about that uh, previously has anything changed with with commission is can you be an independent hairdresser and be paid and be paid commission by the salon well so the the term commission is not what it would be um but the concept of a commission can be ingrained into how you structure your rent without running afoul um there's nothing in the law that says how rent needs to operate, right? Like it doesn't say, okay, you need to charge a flat fee and only a flat fee. And so you have a lot of discretion as the salon owner slash landlord, depending on how we set this thing up. But, you know, for purposes of this conversation, same thing. You have a lot of discretion to decide what the rent looks like, how it's structured. And and I've built some models where there is a, what's, you know, commonly understood to be a commission type arrangement where there's a flat base rent plus a portion of, you know, proceeds that go back as part of the rent. And that's historically thought of as a commission. Um, we wouldn't call it commission because that's a very, that's a term that's very specific to the employment model, Mm -hmm. but the concept is the same. And, And yeah, I think you can do that. 
Okay. What else? Um, I should say that on the commission side, um, you know, I've seen a whole different host of methods. Um, I've seen folks who've tried to do almost a, exclusively a rent that was based off um, stylist income. In other words, uh, you know, a commission type arrangement where it was almost 100% the form of the rent. And I've seen folks go all the way in the opposite direction where there was base rent and it was just flat and then some, you know, a lot of in between. I think that the further that you go on that scale towards all quote unquote commission type rent, the more of a problem that you're creating for yourself. Um, just because the more towards that end of the spectrum that you get, the more it looks like a classic uh, employment type arrangement. Mm -hmm. um, that That's... I don't have any specific legal authority for that other than, you know, lots of experience and just pretty educated guess. Um, so I think the best bet would be to create some level of flat, you know, flat rent with a quote unquote commission type component to it. Um, and go in that, in that route. But again, there's, there's lots of room to sort of dictate what that rent looks like. Yeah, I, I can see how complicated it can be. I mean, I'm I'm still stuck on the basic notion that commission is paid from the salon to the hairdresser, whether commission or whether independent or employee. Uh, and in order for the salon to pay the commission, the salon needs to collect the service money, right? But right. the salon can't collect the service money for an independent contractor yep. hairstylist. Yep. So I don't even know how the the uh, the basis of a, of a commission would would even work legally if the hairdressers are independent. Yeah, I mean it, it's really just a logistics issue, and it gets complicated because the the arrangements that I've set up or that had a rent a flat rent with a quote unquote commission type component to it, it's hard to structure because you need a period of time in order to figure out like what what does that percentage look like, right? Mm-hmm. Usually you collect the, f the flat rent up front for the week and then you true up the, you know, the percentage commission slash commission type component at the end. And that money has to come back from the stylist. Um, and there needs to be a sort of meeting of the minds and a tracking on what the percentage is for the week. Um, so it, it, you need to set up. And, well, first of all, you need to think long and hard about the administrative heartache that goes into having that type of an arrangement um because you're right um I, I know a lot of salon owners are um you know concerned about that because they do and potentially would have to go get the money back from the stylist but that's just something they're gonna have to live with because to your point they have to keep the money now the, there's the hairstylist has to receive the money has to receive the money that there is no gray area about that um so it can create a bunch of logistical issues um and and for some and and that's why you know like i said earlier there's good and bad in that it's good predictable and bad predictable but one of the things that is good is you know this is there's no gray area in this monetary collection but within that sort of decision different folks are going to decide that, you know, having to go chase stylists for commission on the back end might not be worth the aggravation that it is. So I'm just going to increase my flat rent and call it a pure flat rent situation. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a lot of 
room for uh, customization for individual salon owners to make those types of decisions based on what's more important to them and still be in compliance doing you know it one way versus a completely different way right wow okay well um i i don't think you're going to be out of a job any day soon not if they keep passing these laws it's like well <laughs> and you know i was a little worried about this episode thinking that it was just going to be kind of a humdrum update sort of episode but I think it's actually better because the I mean, it's for, from an you know episodic standpoint because um, we actually have clarity and so we can talk about the the specific things that people have to do in order to be this or that and yeah. and I I think it's really great uh, anything that uh, anything else that you want to say regarding this uh, AB five and and the current state of legality with salons. No, I guess what I would say is that, you know, I think a lot of folks have been in wait and see mode. Um, and I know that because I've had clients who, you know, discussed that with me or even potential clients who sort of told me the same thing. And that's been kind of the operating um, method. And and now, you know, with the passage of the law going live January 1, I mean, this is here to stay. The ABC test is the new model. It's not going to get overturned. Um so it's important to um, to get out in front of this as much as possible and address it. And, and it is, you know, one thing I should add too. Unfortunately, it is retroactive. So, which means that even though it really only passed, you know, as of the decision date of Dynamex and and or January first, it goes back four years. So, um, yeah, and I never understood that. I mean, that that's total horseshit. Like, how can they do that? Totally agree. <laughs> uh, that was the argument that I pitched to the Supreme Court, actually, on why it shouldn't be. Um, no, I'm kidding. Did you, <laughs> you said horseshit, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. That was legal defense, Your Honor. <laughs> this is horseshit, uh, and it and it really is. I think it's it's dramatically unfair and inappropriate um, because there was no predictability in the prior law, and they basically took an extremely nuanced distant part of that amalgam of factors from the prior test and said, oh, we're going to sort of prop this one part up and emphasize this. But because it's part of the old test, it's, you know, we're just interpreting existing law and therefore it goes backwards. And and it's just, it's such a stretch that it just defies the imagination. But yeah. unfortunately, it's, yeah. it's what, so. okay. Okay, so we have a lot of listeners outside of California. Are there any indications of similar laws in in other states? Yeah, the ABC test is live in. Last time I checked, you know, sixteen to eighteen some odd states. So um, they're definitely dealing with it. I don't know what the state of affairs are on on carving out exemptions for it, um, but I, I'm sure that. You know, as with a lot of areas in California law, you know, they try and be very progressive and a lot of states sort of look to what we're doing. So I would be I would imagine that they're going to see a lot of similar similar types of exemptions passed. Yeah. Okay, so for salon owners in other states, if they want to get advice on this, if they want to get counsel, they should look up an employment lawyer in their state. Correct. Yeah, that's usually the best thing it's going to be, you know, to do um, because a lot of states do have very specific stuff. And if they don't, you'll you'll know, too, because then usually federal law will just apply, which arguably applies, applies to everybody. Um, 
so that that's a good starting point. The other thing too is a, a decent resource for this type of stuff. Um, every state has its own um, what is effectively like the Department of Labor, mm-hmm. uh, and they usually publish decent resources online that can be accessed. That's always a good sort of self help um, uh, outlet. The other one too is is that um, my experience has been that the the PBA, the Professional Beauty Association. Um, who is a pretty strong lobby in California, is also on top of the current state of affairs of legislation affecting the salon industry in every state. And if you go onto their website, um, I think last time I looked, they do have like a whole legislative um, tab, you know, where you can click on an interactive map and they'll sort of give you, um, you know, the status and updates and goings on of, you know, relevant laws in, in your state. So, yeah, that's cool. Okay, so thank you so much, Jason, for coming on again. I don't know. I can't promise that you're going to be as popular as you were on episode 68, but I certainly hope so. And uh, I'm going to try to come up with a title that's equally as compelling for this one. Um, Or I might just uh, reuse the title and just put update. But anyone who's listening, if they want to contact you, how do they contact you? So uh, you can... Ping me on my email, um, Ross, R-O-S-S-J, at Higgs, H-I-G is in girl, G is in girl, S is in Sam, law.com is probably the best way. Um, and my um, profile and all my information is online at HiggsLaw.com. Okay. And if a salon owner wants to call you and, and just kind of inquire, uh, when they email you, is like the clock start ticking and you start charging or, or do you, does somebody get like a, a free, you know, whatever it's called? No, I'm happy to spend a little bit of time doing an initial consult okay. free of charge, um, you know, and, and it's just kind of walking folks through what their options are, talking a little bit about their business, see what, what might be um, helpful for them. And, and then we take it from there. Cool. Thanks again. And um, always fun talking to you. Yep. You too. Hey guys, hope you liked that episode. Hope you learned a lot. I would be super appreciative if you would screenshot this episode and share it with your friends. Word of mouth is everything to me and podcasters. And of course, this is a very specific episode that deals with uh, the legality of salons. So if you know a salon owner or one of your friends has a salon and you think they should hear this, send this episode to them. Um, If you're listening on iTunes or any other podcast player, there's always a share option. So please use it. I would deeply, deeply appreciate it. So for the Podaloot, uh, next week, it'll be a repost on salonrepublic.creators and all 980,000 followers of them. Get your Instagram feeds ready. For a chance to win, write a review on the Apple Podcast app or Stitcher.com for Droid users. The review has to include your Instagram handle so I know who you are. Otherwise, I don't know who you are. Of course, I would appreciate the review, but I want to give you something. So put your Instagram handle on there. Make sure you're following the Hair Game Podcast and me, Love Eric Taylor, on Instagram. And then I put your name in my bag. Each week, I pull a name and I announce the winner at the beginning of every episode, just like uh, Whitney Burkhart won uh, earlier on this episode. She won the iWatch. I think this is our third or fourth iWatch that we've given away. And of course, we'll keep giving away cool stuff like this. Sometimes it's an iWatch. Sometimes it's like 100 bucks on Amazon. Sometimes it's a $200 blah, 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 blah. 
You have to be listening to win, so you can DM me your mailing address. If you don't win, keep listening because your name stays in my bag, in my office. You can win any week on any episode. For complete details, go to salonrepublic.com and then you hit the menu and you'll see the Hair Game Podcast uh, menu item right there. And you pick it and it has all the information and of course all the links to all the different episodes on all the different platforms. Next week's episode will be a compilation of all of your hair horror stories. There are some absolutely phenomenally hilarious hair horror stories on here. And of course, everyone is a learning lesson. Until then, have a great week.